Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. The sermon title today, uh, to follow the pattern that we've been on, would probably be What is Required in the Seventh Commandment, Part 1. It could also be titled Special Issues in the Seventh Commandment, but I didn't want everyone to go to sleep before the sermon started. And so I chose the title that you see in your bulletin, The Son and the Bride, talking about two different archetypes of masculinity and femininity that the Bible majors on, obviously, with Christ being the Son, and then we as the church being the Bride. Our text is Exodus 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed help us not to commit adultery. That you would help us positively to live out, to rejoice in, to model the virtue of chastity. Make us chaste people, Father. And help us in our attempt to be chaste, to know what chastity is. To know what our calling is as man, male, and female. Give us a heart of wisdom. Give us the patience and ready ear to listen to your word. Help me to speak boldly and accurately to instruct and build up your people in the calling that you have placed on each one of them as men and women. Father, we need your help. Our thinking is scrambled on this subject. But we pray that you would unscramble it, that you would put us back to rights, that you would help us to think not like children nor like fools, but like the blessed God-fearing man described in Psalms 1 and 128, whom we just sang about. We pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus, the true God-fearing man. Amen. Well, I said a few weeks ago that the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath day is the most controversial of all the commands in Christian circles. But there is no doubt that of the ten, this commandment against adultery is the most controversial in secular circles. Within our world today, specifically and especially in the Western world, and perhaps, in, in fact, most prominently in the United States, the question of what men and women are and what men and women are for is, to say the least, a tangled mess. The scripture speaks to this question. And in order to understand the moral dimension of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, we have to first understand what human sexuality is, and then what right use of human sexuality looks like. Not committing adultery, just like with the command last week, no homicide, is far more than don't cheat on your spouse. That's part of it. But before we can get there, we need to establish a lot of groundwork. 
Sexuality is far more than something we all do every day, putting a plug into an outlet and then pulling it back out. Right? Any plug can go into any standard outlet. There's no moral dimension to that. And that is where the world is at on sexuality. And that is not where God is at. That is not where the Bible is at, and that is not where the Christian's thinking should be. This commandment requires us to use our sexuality rightly, to embrace our sexuality as men and women, and then use that in obedience to God. So, where do we begin? In my understanding, or the way I personally think of it, sexuality is a form of handedness. You all have two hands, and if you put them together, you think, aha, my two hands are identical. They are exactly alike. But then you stack them on each other, facing the same direction, and you see that they are exactly the reverse of one another. There's right-handed and left-handed, and if you have two right-handed gloves, or if you are privileged enough to own toe socks and have two right-footed toe socks, you will see that your feet are not identical and your hands are not identical, and in the same way, men and women are not identical. We are a perfect match, and yet we are also perfectly inverted from one another. So that is a metaphor that I use to think about sexuality, what it is to be male or female. We are just like each other, except that we are opposite to each other, and both are equally true. So in order to get a handle on how you ought to live as a man, how you ought to live as a woman, we need to go back to Scripture. There is a command in Scripture, which we read just a moment ago, the only command that is specifically addressed by name to men and to women. It is a joint command. Male and female, he created them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So God addressing men and women as such, as men and as women, says here is a joint command. In fact, there are three joint commands, not just the dominion mandate, but also the Great Commandment, and the Great Commission. These all three apply equally to both sexes. But there are also special tasks. And men have two things, two watchwords, men, that we are given in Genesis 2, to guard and to work, to work and to guard. God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to guard it. Women also have two special tasks that they are given to make homes in Proverbs 14 and to glorify man, says 1 Corinthians 11, which I think is best understood as glorifying the joint tasks. And then that brings us back to the joint task, be fruitful and multiply. That is something that we can only do together. In other words, men... We can't keep the command to be fruitful and multiply without the women. Ladies, you can't keep the command to be fruitful and multiply without the men. It is a joint task in the most literal sense of the word. So we'll conclude by talking about that and the different roles 
within that joint task. Let's talk first about the joint task in general. Men and women alike, in so many words, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. God's first word to human beings is a word of blessing. Not a command, but a word of blessing. But his second word is a command, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God loves fertility. He made all living things to bring forth seed after their kind. Every plant, every animal, every bacteria has a means of reproduction. It can make another one of itself. God made everything to bring forth seed after its kind, but only to human beings did he say to take over the planet. That's not the mission of the E. coli or of the blue whale or of the, the dog or of the pine tree or all of the other living things that God made. Only to us did he say, take over the planet. And it is a known fact that Human beings are the only species of life that lives in all known environments. From the tropics to the Arctic, the rainforest to the desert, and we have brought the dog with us. The dog can live in all known environments as well. So we have this command, take over the planet. Lots of people complain about overpopulation. Traffic can be annoying usually not in Gillette, but traffic is just a symptom of poor urban design, not a symptom of overpopulation. We were made to take over and fill the earth. So this task of dominion is accomplished through the hard work and daily callings of both men and women. Thus sometimes in conservative Christian circles or in conservative Muslim circles, it's brought up the question, should women work? And the answer is right here in the Dominion Mandate, and the answer is yes, absolutely. Women are just as responsible to fill and subdue the earth through their daily callings as men are. God says explicitly to women, subdue that earth. Get out there and do a job that brings the earth under the dominion of the human race. So, yes, ladies are called to work and to work hard just as men are. Now men, their special task is also to work, which is not the case for women. And women in general prefer a more balanced lifestyle that has less work and more social time and more time with children and so on. We'll talk about that. But fill the earth, subdue it. That goes for men. That goes for women. The second joint task is the great commandment that Jesus mentions. Love God, love your neighbor. This is not just a task for women, not just a task for men. This is a task for the entire human race. And the same goes for the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. That is the job of both men and women. That will not be accomplished unless all Christians and ultimately all human beings participate in teaching and discipling. So, the joint task, but that leads to the special tasks. And this, of course, is the rock on which many different attempts have foundered. How do we describe the special tasks of men and women? Many people 
have said, well, you know, our first refuge is to go to specific things of our own culture and say, well, women wear dresses and makeup and men don't. So there we go. There's a difference. And others, slightly wiser heads, look around and say, well, the ancient, in ancient Egypt, the men wore makeup and the men wore dresses. So where does that put us? There must be no difference. So that is kind of where our culture is stuck at. Oh, different cultures have different male things and different female things. Therefore, there is no such thing as a male thing or a female thing. That's all foolish. The difference is not in the activity. Activities and objects in the world do not have sexes. People have sexes, right? The cleaning the kitchen is not a male thing or a female thing. Embroidery is not a male thing or a female thing. Planting plants, harvesting vineyards, that's not a male thing or a female thing. No activity, no object in this world is male or female. It's persons that are male and female. And so masculinity and femininity come down not to specific activities, actions, traits, rather to well, it is an identity issue. Who are you? And then what role do you fill within the human world? Do you fill a male role or a female role? Right? Put differently, we can say, is there any difference between a king and a queen? Is there any difference between a husband and a wife? Between an actor and an actress? Is there any substantive difference in these roles? Or are they simply identical, different names for an identical role? And the biblical answer is there is a substantive difference within the role. It's not that specific things are necessarily male or female tasks or objects, but rather specific roles are necessarily male and female. Motherhood is a specifically female role. Dads, you can be great dads. You can't be great moms. It doesn't work. Nor does it work for moms to try to be great dads. I read a very sad article not too long ago by a woman who works full-time and lets her husband take care of the kids. And She said, it drives me nuts that he doesn't care how often their water bottles are washed. But I just, I let it go. I think to myself, I am a female dad. Dads just hand him the water bottle. And I can walk away and go to work and my conscience is clear because I am a female dad. This, this poor lady is very confused. The, the role is a female role. To be a mother. To be a queen. To be a princess. The, all of these other roles that we have within human society are sexed, are appropriate for a woman or for a man. So the cultural expression of masculinity and femininity can vary. The cultural tasks of masculinity and femininity can vary. In our culture, the men kill the deer and skin the deer. But in other cultures, the men go hunting and kill the animal, and then the women skin the animal. That doesn't mean that there is 
that one is right or wrong necessarily. Rather, I'm saying that the difference lies not in the nature of the activity, but in the social world. It is persons and groups of persons or roles within social groups that have sexes. So, men and women are different with different roles and tasks. And the task of the man is summarized right away in Genesis chapter 2. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and guard it. So, two big words or, well, they're short words, but they contain much within them. These are very basic words that cover a huge swath of territory. These two words also recur later as a description of the job of the priests in the tabernacle, as in Numbers 3.8, for instance. God takes the priest and says, you need to work this, and you need to guard this. So, a longer version, if you want to switch it into Latin, you could say that a man is provider and protector. We, instead of work and guard, we have provide and protect. Same idea. So men, yes, it is our calling, first and foremost, as we all recognize, to work. And we as men identify strongly with our occupations. And if you meet another man, you cannot be easy in your mind until you have categorized his occupation. If you meet him, you want to know, where do you work? And if he tries to withhold that information, you get really nervous and antsy. What's wrong with this guy? You know, it's like he's wearing some kind of rubber mask over his whole face. He's concealing his identity. This must be nefarious. That's because men, our first task as men is to work. You're called in a special way to get out there and change things in the world by doing hard work. So God doesn't say that specific occupations are manly. Obviously, Adam's occupation was as a gardener. Jesus' occupation was as a carpenter. But there are many occupations in this world. And I can tell you about all of them. They're all a lot of work. And if you are doing your job right, you will find that there is enough work there for you to work hard in that job for the rest of your life. So that's the first special task of the man, to work. The second task is to guard. The man is a protector. Now, this goes far beyond shooting the occasional intruder. The much bigger threat, guys, to us and to our family and to our wealth than the biker gangs of our imagination is our own and our children's wastefulness, laziness, indifference, and so on. We guard our families, we guard our stuff, we guard the communities of which we're a part. That is the man's natural bent, and that is his calling. So, men are not made men and able to be aggressive and protective so that they can be bullies and get what they want out of life, so that they can have fun and make the women do all the work, as the perversion in many pagan cultures is. Uh, we weren't made so we could hurt the weak. We were made to protect, to guard. So, 
right? You want to know how to be manly? God says it comes down to two things. Are you working? Are you guarding? There's some men out there that are really good workers and that are terrible guarders, that waste things or that destroy their own families. There are others, perhaps, who are good guarders, who are good at protecting their circle, but really bad at working. And if you can't work, you can't protect. That is the task of men. What about women? It doesn't say anything in Genesis 2 about what God told the woman. Rather, in fact, the woman is silent until she says in chapter 3 that the I heard your voice. No, what did the woman say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Right. But until that point, she is silent and God doesn't speak to her. Rather, it's later in the book that we see the woman's calling. The first piece of this is in Proverbs 14, where Solomon describes it this way. Proverbs 14.1 Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. What is the first task of women? It is homemaking, to make a house, a place in which people can live. A place to live, to be fed, to be nourished, to be rested, to be refreshed. Women, that is your job. You make that. And of course, Proverbs talks a lot about the wise woman. It doesn't mention her as having a husband. It doesn't mention her as having children. But it does mention her as having a home. Her job is to make that home, even if she's the only one living in it, regardless of whether she's making it for children, making it for a husband, or simply making it. Women, you are made to make homes. That is how, right, men work and guard. That's how they carry out the joint task of filling the earth and subduing it. Women make homes. That is how you begin to carry out that task of filling the earth and subduing it. The feminists have devalued this work and pointed to positions of political and economic power as the only truly worthy places to occupy. That's diametrically opposed to the values of the kingdom where the greatest are the servants of all. Homemaking, insofar as we magnify the household and its role in caring for human beings, we magnify women. Right? If you're pro-woman, you want to see women exalted, make the household more important. Increase the importance of the household, increase the number of services it provides, the number of things it does, the number of things it's involved in. If your home is just a dormitory, no one is ever there, nothing's ever happening there, people can't have their needs met there, then Correspondingly, the role of homemaker is less important. But if your home is a place where people love to be, where, like Tolkien says, there was whatever you like to do in that house, rest and music and sleep and food, and that enhances the role of the one who makes the home. So I said that social roles are sexed, and homemaking is sexed female. Making something into a home, something that a woman does. Right? This was illustrated to me so clearly, many of you have had this same 
opportunity to go into a workplace and to look at the men's offices and to look at the women's offices within that workplace. And which offices are more homey? Yeah, it only takes a little bit to notice. that My workplace, HSLDA Online Academy, I was there a couple of months ago, and my female boss and her deputy have beautifully decorated offices with all of these nice little objects that remind them of home. And uh, my male peer went to his office. In there was a computer and three screens. And in the corner, he did have a little nest of broken USB cables, a shrine to his tech god that is the god of bad network connections. And that was the sum total of decoration. Oh, plus one flowchart on the wall that he had printed from XKCD. So, right, women make homes. This is part of who you are. This is part of your joint, part of your task. So homemaking doesn't crowd out the dominion mandate, the great commandment and the great commission. Homemaking, ladies, is how you fulfill the dominion mandate, the great commandment, and the great commission. Your second joint task, or your second individual task, rather, is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. A complicated passage, but one in which Paul says, woman is the glory of man. Now, he says, man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man. What does he mean by that? Well, we know that if we're called to glorify God, we need to make God look good. We declare how wonderful God is. Women are called to glorify men. Women here, so I need to make men look good. But, right, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that. It's not always wrong to make a man look good. Just as we could think of a team that's organized to play basketball. That is the whole reason they exist, is to play this game called basketball. But there's a right way and a wrong way to play basketball. You can play basketball badly, you can break the rules, or you can just simply be very bad at grabbing the ball, dribbling the ball, throwing the ball through the hoop, getting the ball away from the other team, throwing the ball over the other team's head. In the same way, there is a bad way that women glorify men. And that is bad. That shouldn't be done. Right? The wife who's covering for her alcoholic husband or the wife who's pushing her man to succeed and hiding all his failures, things like this, glorifying your man at the expense of the truth is not what Paul is talking about when he says woman is the glory of man. He's talking about glorifying your man truly, by telling the truth, right? There are men in Christian culture, men are glorified by telling the truth about them because they obey God and they do things that are worth glorifying. So we actually have, believe it or not, right? I mentioned a sports team a moment ago. I don't know that this is so common in basketball, but we actually have women who are paid to glorify the actions of sports teams. We call them cheerleaders. It's a professional full-time position. You women will go out on the field and you will make this team look good. Now, 
A lot of women look at that and say, oh, cheerleading, what a worthless profession. That's so stupid. But there is something to it. Woman is the glory of man. And women, that is the second part of your task. Not simply to glorify any man, but you are glorifying especially obedient men, the man who is fearing God. So, did you notice that? And we're saying Psalm 128, it says, Bless the man who fears Jehovah. Here's a blessed man, a God-fearing man, who is blessed because he fears God. And what glorifies this man? What is his blessing found in? Oh, like a vine with fruit abounding in your house, your wife is found, right? This woman is glorifying this man by bearing children for him, making a home in which he and the children can live. This is part of woman's special task. You glorify, and in a Christian way, you don't just glorify a man no matter what he does. You glorify the right things that he's doing, the things that are God-fearing, the things that are right. The joint task of the human race, ultimately, insofar as that man is obedient, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, taking dominion over nature, working and guarding, in the tasks that he's been assigned, that is the thing that you as a woman can look at and say, I appreciate that. I glorify that. I cheer for that. So these things apply across cultures. Notice that God doesn't make them complicated or difficult or say, you express your femininity by first doing X, then Y, then Z, then A, then B. It's a five-step process. No, he boils it down for men and women, we're both simple creatures, down to two words, men, work, and guard. Women, make homes, glorify. That is your task. And that brings us back to the joint task. Fulfilling the dominion mandate, being fruitful and multiply, requires us to work together. There are no... There is no being fruitful, there is no multiplying when the men and the women can't figure out how to connect. When they're talking past each other, when they're failing in relationships, when they can't get married and stay married, then the being fruitful and multiplying falls off a cliff, which is, of course, exactly what's happened in the last 60 or 70 years. where The world birth rate has gone from Five children per woman down to just over two children per woman. Because men and women, the male-female dance is broken down and we frankly don't know how to be fruitful and multiply because we don't know how to find a spouse or if we find one, how to stay together. And that is where the world is at. So many of the questions then and so much of the confusion that our culture is mired in comes back to the question of what in the world do I do with my sexuality when I don't have a spouse? How do I be a single man? How do I be a single woman? How do I do that well? Or, right, I'm surrounded by couples who are doing it terribly as well. So, why should I think that my confusion will get any better if I do find somebody? That is where our culture lives. So, what is a single man for? For working and guarding. What is a single woman for? Homemaking and glorifying. 
your sexuality when you're single is ultimately for the same things that it's for when you're married. You are still supposed to be filling the earth and subduing it. Especially, right, subduing it. You have to work together to fill the earth. But even if you aren't able to work together with a spouse, you can still subdue and take dominion over the earth by working in your daily calling. And for men, that will especially look like working and guarding. For women, that will especially look like homemaking and glorifying. So, marriage requires different roles. The social roles of husband and wife are different from each other. They can't be boiled down to the interchangeable spouse. To say spouse is not the same thing as to say husband. It is not the same thing as to say wife. So the Bible talks about that. And again, with two words for each partner, tells husbands you have two jobs. You have to love. You have to head. Love your wife, be head of your wife. The head is what pulls the body together and makes it a unity. They too shall become one flesh. One flesh requires one head. I listened to a sermon on this this morning where the pastor was confused and he said, the elders are the head of the church and they're heads of the single women who are in the church. That's nonsense. There's one head of the church, Christ. The head is the thing that pulls the body together into being a unified organism. The whole church is one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it's one body under one head. In fact, the whole universe is one body under one head. Ephesians 1 says that in the fullness of time, God will sum up everything under the headship of Christ. He is the one who brings it together in a unity that's summed up, that's focused in him as the head. So plural eldership is a totally different thing. That's a good thing, but it is not that a church with three elders, like our church, has three heads. That is really weird, and that is wrong. We're not a three-headed church. We are part of the global one-headed church, which has Jesus as its head. So the husband is head of his wife, that is the husband with the wife together makes one flesh, one unit, one organism, one family, we call it. So husbands, that's your job, to take this disparate bunch of yourself and your wife and whatever kids come along and meld that into a single family unit. That's what it is to be head, and you do that by love, by Wanting what's best for your wife, doing what's best for your wife, delighting in your wife. That's what love is, as we've talked about. And then, wives, uh, two principles for you. The wife is called to respect her husband. Don't marry a man you can't admire. If you pity him, don't marry him. A woman is called to respect her husband. So that is one thing that is, you know, the sexed dimension of that social role of wife. To say, I am his wife, is to say, I admire him. And thus, the, the mismatch between those roles 
leads to, well, it's classic comedy material. And uh, the couple that instantly comes to mind is Bill and Hillary Clinton, right? 330 million Americans look at that couple and they think she is his wife. How can she admire him? The nonpartisan question, Democrats think it, Republicans think it, because it's built into the fabric of the world. Wives are called to respect. That's part of the package. And so it is a question that naturally springs to mind. And we've seen it in other couples that all of us have met. How can she respect him? And pretty soon, usually you talk and find out, oh, she doesn't respect him. Well, I don't respect him either, but she's his wife. Second thing wives are called to do, Genesis 2.18, there is one comment on women, but specifically on wives, where it says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So that's the wife's specific identity as a helper. So some have tried to take that and say, well, all women are helpers and Ladies, if you don't have a husband, you're there to help your dad. If your dad is dead, well, help your brother. If you don't have a brother, well then, help somebody at church. No, that is not what it is. But as far as the joint task of being fruitful and multiplying, that is given to men and women. The man is the head who brings unity to the family that works on that task. The wife helps him with that task. So, at the end of the day, ladies, wives, you were created for him, and he was not created for you. Paul also makes that comment in 1 Corinthians 11. The woman is for the man. A relationship, a marriage that gets this fundamental truth backwards is miserable for the husband, miserable for the wife. It's doubly miserable for the kids. When mom says, dad is here for me, he's here to help me. No, no, the text says, ladies, you are to help your husband. He is the one that is going to answer to God as to whether you were fruitful, multiplied, filled the earth, and subdue it. Whether you carried out that original dominion mandate. So, wives, you're called to glorify the joint task. A lot of the time, that's going to feel like you're mostly just making your husband's part of it look good. That's what being a helper means. As most of you know, I spent a good part of the week, two weeks ago, helping to build a pole barn. At the end of the week, my friend had a pole barn, and I didn't. Should I resent that, right? I helped him make his pole barn look good. I was there, I was a helper, he now has something that I don't have. I can resent that. I helped with that. That should say on the side of it, Caleb Nelson's pole barns. Or, you're right, should I despise my friend because I helped him? That's where a lot, a lot of wives are at. I'm a helper, and I hate it. And I resent this man whom I help all the time and I wish that I didn't help him because I am making him look good and that just rubs my soul 
raw. So, right? Unhappy person who is unwilling to embrace what she's for, who resists that purpose. The woman is for the man, and in marriage, the woman is a helper to the man that she admires, and she glorifies, she makes him look good. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, also Solomon. Wives, don't despise your husbands because you helped them. Don't despise them because you made them look good. Yes, it's probably true to say he only looks that good, he's only that admired because I helped him get there. And it could be, yeah, you forced him into the master's program and you forced him into the higher paying job and you put out his clothes every night so that he gets compliments on them in the next day and blah, blah, blah. Nothing wrong with that except women when you resent it. And when you say, I hate this. He's where he is because of me and I don't get the credit. That's what glorifying means. When we glorify God, we shouldn't expect everyone to say, now I'm going to glorify the glorifier of God. Right? You just prayed to God so excellently. You just wrote such an amazing hymn of praise to God that now I'm going to glorify you more than the God you were trying to glorify with your prayer and your hymn. To be the one who brings the glory means that you don't usually get the glory. You're too busy giving it away. And that is a noble calling. That's a Christian calling because ultimately what does Jesus do? He amasses the glory and he hands it over to the Father. The good news is that men and women are different but made for each other. That's related to the good news that God's anointed son and God's church are different but made for each other. We as the church are here to glorify Christ. And if we're mad that we're not glorified by the world, the world doesn't appreciate the church. The world is taking away the church's tax exemptions. The world doesn't see how much good we do for them. If you're mad that you're not glorified by the world, you don't understand what you're here for. We're not here to be glorified by the world. We're here to glorify Christ. And we should not resent that. Right? Church, we are here helping Christ, in one sense, make disciples and turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, That is our job. That's what we're here to do. And if we don't get kudos and plaudits for that, we might resent Jesus. But instead, it's our task to glorify Him and to make Him look good, right? So many of the church's problems come back to us refusing that role. I don't want to make Jesus look good. I want to look good. That's not the bride's job. Your femininity, ladies, is like Holy Mother Church. Your masculinity, men, is like the Holy Son of God. Don't dislike or despise that. Glory in that. And then you'll be ready to begin to keep the seventh commandment. Using your sexuality rightly for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creating us male and female. For giving us 
sexed roles within the church, within the family, within the body politic, even perhaps. Father, help us to live in these roles, to inhabit them. Help us as men to work and to guard, as women to build homes and to glorify in it all, Father. Help us to do that joint task of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, taking dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We ask that you would help us to see your Son as the one who is the ultimate worker and garter. Help us as his bride to respect him and to be a helper to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.